welcome to 1906 McFadden Ave. I'm Kara Timberlake, Communications and Marketing Manager here at the McFadden Ward House. And I'm Rihanna Heft, the Director of Educational Programming. So this episode of 1906 McFadden Ave is part of our series focusing on African American history, not only at the McFadden Ward House, but also in Southeast Texas. Today we're interviewing historian Judy Lindsley, who's completed extensive research on the lived experiences of the staff who worked and sometimes lived at our historic site. Judy published a 1999 journal article in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly, a scholarly publication published by the Texas State Historical Association. Judy's publication, titled Main House, Carriage House, African American Domestic Employees at the McFadden Ward House in Beaumont, Texas, 1900-1950, details the social, political, and economic implications of those working in the domestic arts specifically in Jim Crow segregated Beaumont during this unique time in American history. Thank you for joining us, Judy. It's always a pleasure talking history with you. Thank you for having me. I really always enjoy talking about history. (laughs) Okay, let's dive right in. So at the very beginning of this article, you mentioned sociologist Thorstein Veblen, and he talks about the doctrine of conspicuous consumption. And then you make that tie to the household employees and you make a note. Not only did they reflect a family's social position, they were also absolutely essential to the operation of a prosperous turn-of-the-century household. Can you describe a little bit about what conspicuous consumption is and how this ties into the household employees? Well, conspicuous consumption was a notion, I mean, Veblen made up the phrase, but it was very apropos at that time because you had some families that had amassed fabulous amounts of wealth, and people wanted to emulate that. And one of the things that they had was, in their possession, uh, an enormous house, at least one, and they had to staff that. And so the employees, the more you had, the better ones you had, the more elegantly they were attired and comported themselves, the better it made you and your house look. It was all part uh, and parcel of, of the house and its furnishings. It would be equivalent to the most fabulous set of furniture anybody could have. Well, you had the very best employees. You had more than anybody else. They did things that other people's employees were not, uh, you know, they, maybe they had to do double duty. Well, you had a specific employee for one function alone, and that was all part of conspicuous consumption. From 1906, when the family moved into the house here, until Mamie's death in 1982, the McFadden and Ward families had about 106 household employees on staff over the course of that time period. Why do you think somebody would enter the profession of domestic employee? What would their motivations be? The motivation would be that the alternative was usually a very difficult uh, manual labor. Uh, They could work in the sawmills. uh, They could work in the rice fields around here, um, there wasn't a lot of choice, particularly for females. If they were lucky enough to get a little more education, they could teach. Uh, They could uh, become a practical nurse. But domestic work was just about all there was open for Southern black women in the early 20th century. So the majority of staff that worked here would have been women then? 
Probably. It depends on what you're talking about. The McFadden's would have wanted a male chauffeur for sure and a male yard person. Um, the butler position, a male was considered a little more prestigious than a female. The, the maid was not considered quite as, um, I don't know, exalted a position as, as the butler. So certain positions almost had to be filled by men. But the others, the laundress, the cook, uh, the maids, upstairs and downstairs, if you had enough to have that, uh, the uh, nanny for the children, that, or nursemaid, as, as they were called around here mostly, those would have been female. And uh, that was considered a much better position for a woman than having to work out in the fields. So what other kind of jobs would have been available for women? You mentioned teacher, perhaps field worker. What other things um, were, were African-American women doing in Beaumont during this time? There was probably, depending on the year we're talking about, uh, you could have maybe trained to be a practical nurse uh, when some of the African-American clinics opened here. They did some training. Uh, I'm not sure about in the early years of the 20th century. I don't know exactly when that came to be. And the other thing would have been in a commercial establishment. You could have been a maid or a cook for a commercial establishment, but there weren't a lot of choice in jobs, I'll put it that way, uh, for African-American women. So definitely restricted opportunities oh, for that demographic group. Right, yeah. right. Let's talk a little bit about this concept of paternalism that's mentioned multiple times throughout the article. Can you describe what that was specifically relating to our family? You know, they're in the absence of any sort of governmental assistance, any sort of programs, uh, it was quite often the only thing that African-Americans could turn to for assistance. And what that was was a the employer took care of the employee in return for the employee's loyalty. I mean, that's a very simple way of putting it but it meant that the employer would take care of them, and that even, depending on the relationship between them, it could even mean that the employer took care of the employee in his, old, his or her old age after they couldn't work anymore, uh, would pay their medical expenses, would buy their uniforms, would certainly sometimes give them, uh, in the case of the McFadden's, they could stay in the carriage house rent-free and could eat all three meals in the house. And it would basically be the same meals that the McFadden's had, uh, you know, with some uh, exceptions, of course, like banquets and things like that. But uh, as far as the what the cook prepared, uh, it would be the same as the, the, what the family ate. And so there were benefits that transcended the pay, which was a good thing because pay was uniformly low for domestic work, even though the McFadden's had the reputation for paying more because Ida wanted the very best uh, employees she could get. So in your research, was the paternalism of the employer reciprocated by the loyalty of the staff here at the McFadden Ward House? In some cases it was. They had some employees who worked for them for years and years. Probably the most notable one was Cecilia Smith, whom we actually interpret in the carriage house uh, um, as her one side was her apartment, and she worked for them for 40 years. Um, but others did. Louis Lemon, the cook, was there for 37 years. Uh, Cecilia's mother, Bruni, 
worked for at least 40 years, I think, for them. I'd have to do the math. They had some who were very loyal. Uh, WPH's chauffeur, Tom Parker, was. Uh, other times, they had people who came in and worked a day or a week and left. They, you know, there was something about the employment that was not to their liking. Um, and I think it depended a whole lot on the person and on the McFadden's. So you say in your article that in the South paternalism, it was reinforced and further defined by this rigid segregation since the overwhelming majority of domestic employees were African-American. And I just want to put some numbers into this as well. So in 1900, about 77% of all Southern domestic employees would have been African-American. And then we see in 1920 that that number has increased to 82%, just so we get that full picture of who would have comprised these household employees. So segregation was really this foundation of the Southern racial social structure, and how did that play a part in these household employees, and specifically that relationship between the employees and their employers? Well, I think the McFadden's specifically, and almost all employers in this area, would have assumed that anyone who came to work at the house for them would be African-American. There was one quote I read by, I believe it was um, Mamie McFadden Ward's niece, and she said that there was only one white person who had ever really applied for a position at the house, and Mamie briefly hired him but didn't like the idea. Uh, it, It just disturbed her for some reason. I guess she didn't think that white people should be doing that sort of work, or maybe she didn't trust him because she thought he should be doing something else. But yes, it was it was overwhelmingly uh, African-American, and uh, I do remember uh, was they were having trouble filling some of the positions, I think the upstairs maid or the downstairs maid, and she mentioned that if she could get, uh, and it was a Swedish national, and I don't know whether that meant that there had been a number of Swedish immigrants who were looking for household work. I have no idea where she got that source, but she said she would do that, but it never happened. That's interesting. I know in some of my own research from the the barons of the Northeast, specifically the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and those folks, um, they wanted these Swedish women to work in their entryway. Again, part of that whole idea of conspicuous consumption. Mm-hmm. So they were the preferred domestic for that area. So I thought that was so interesting when I, I read that in your article as well, that Ida specifically mentioned if she could get a Swede, that would be her preference. And I thought, wow, look at the emulation and that diffusion of wanting that particular person to open your door for your guests and to greet them. That emulation, it, it could... It really just cascaded down the social scale uh, because, as you say, Ida had the idea of a Swede from the Vanderbilts and and all of the other wealthy, wealthy families. And all of the whole social custom thing kind of traveled down the scale that, that for instance, um, the Vanderbilts, et cetera, had afternoons when they were at home and people would come and visit them and you know they would kind of hold court <laughs> for a while and and then people would come in and I I'll say 
have a cup of tea. The, the ritual was you did not stay long. You came in, maybe had a cup of tea, visited briefly, and then went on to the next person. And you might make seven or eight calls in one afternoon if there were enough people at home. And I noticed that there were certain afternoons that Beaumont Society ladies were at home. And even after when Mamie married... There was an extra card that went in the, the wedding invitation, and it said, at home after June whatever. And so that meant she would be available for people to come by and visit. And after she married, though, she and her mother paid, one afternoon paid six or seven social calls. So it was something that you did, but that traveled up the domestic scale. And even, for instance, ladies having a rest period in the afternoon, women who say farmers' wives and things, if they could do that, they would have a little period in the afternoon to rest and relax. And that was kind of, well, the fine ladies can do it, so maybe we can too. That's interesting. But of course, the domestic staff would not have had that privilege of rest in the afternoon as they were tending to everybody's needs and making the tea and answering the door and making the tea cakes and all the things that went behind the scenes to create these these afternoons of leisure for these particular people. That's exactly right. The uh, domestic employees made it possible for the other ladies to be able to rest and do whatever. That's interesting. So thinking about um, this whole hiring process and what that looked like. How were these people found? Was it by word of mouth? Did they have ads out in the newspapers? Because I know even the ads were racialized at that time to only seeking certain groups of people for certain jobs around town. So what did that look like for the McFadden's? Uh, Generally, uh, the McFadden's, and that would have either been Ida or Mamie, uh, Ida in early years, but Mamie took it on fairly soon after she got married. Mostly it would have been word of mouth uh, because she would talk to maybe one of the other employees and say, okay, do you know of anyone who's looking for work? There were times that Mamie actually was pretty frantic about trying to find someone, and she and Carol even drove to Louisiana several times looking for someone but I think they must have had a lead it's it's a diary entry and so you don't get a lot of of detail but that um, they would go to Lake Charles or somewhere like that looking for a butler or or a chauffeur or a yard man and or another maid and uh, generally though it was word of mouth and I don't think she did ads until maybe she did begin to get desperate, which would have probably been in the early 40s. She does talk about interviewing in her diary, interviewing three or four people some afternoon, and so you figure she had to have put out some kind of ad somewhere or they wouldn't have known to come there at that time. But uh, um, she would look far and wide when, when things got desperate. And uh, and they did, particularly during World War II. So you mentioned word of mouth, but it worked both ways as well. It wasn't just for the employers, but employees were able to talk about, you know, is your boss respectful? Are they kind? Or do they pay well? Are there benefits? It worked both sides, which I thought was really fascinating. It is, because it also revealed that even though there were horrible inequities, uh, as far as the white people having, uh, you know, the the power over employees because they control the purse strings, still 
the employees weren't without some resource, and they certainly learned how to, to work that. And uh, uh, if the reputation came about that you were not a nice person to work for, um, you know, they would probably not apply. And the McFadden's did have the reputation for paying fairly well, and they... On the ranch, at least, they had the reputation for feeding very well, uh, you know, the ranch hands. And they were, in general, regarded fairly favorably. Now, the other thing, too, is that if an employee got mad at an employer or if the employer was not happy with the employee, even if the employee got fired, they could nearly always go find a job someplace else. It was not as though there was this great void out there. And even if someone said that, if someone quit the McFadden's and went to work for one of the other families or went to apply, it wouldn't necessarily mean that the other family wouldn't fire them, wouldn't hire them, I'm sorry, uh, because... Who knew why? And if you needed someone, you were going to hire them. You know, they could almost always find employment somewhere else. You spoke of the staff using their resources. Can you talk a little bit more about how perhaps the staff could demonstrate their agency in these complicated times where they didn't really have a great deal of social or economic, even political power was restricted? How did they demonstrate their agency and kind of exert power for their own circumstance, even a little bit of power over the family? Well, they could object to things. Uh, They could get angry. Of course, as I pointed out, they could quit. And evidence uh, in the records indicates that Mamie, even though she was sometimes the most critical one as compared to Ida as, as to how people's work was going, she also seemed to be a little more hesitant to fire them, that she would tolerate what they would have called back talk then, and and uh, maybe in some cases uh, an employee's uh, having had too much to drink or something like that, that, that they would put up with some misbehavior rather than have to go out and go through all of that trouble to hire someone else, particularly when sometimes there wasn't a lot of availability. Yeah, especially moving into some of these social issues from the two world wars and what that looked like for supply and demand for labor, Mm -hmm. labor shortages Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing too. Right. Yeah. I also want to add to that. So you you said this so wonderfully and succinctly um, that employers would go to extremes to maintain the system, expanding much time and effort, tolerating walkouts, quarrels, eccentric behavior, and what they saw as unreasonable wage increases because they were so dependent on these employees. And I love that to think these employees, they had some power and some autonomy, not very much, but they knew that they did have some and they were able to wield a little bit of control about where they were and how they were treated. Right. And they did. They they learned how to utilize that. And it's really kind of seems absurd to us today to see in the correspondence between Ida and Mamie, right, I think it was about 1942 or 43, which would have been during the war, they needed another maid for the upstairs because Ida's sister was going to come and spend Christmas. And Mamie was apparently just frantic that she couldn't find somebody 
to set up a proper household to to create the proper environment for her Aunt Wita. They finally ended up putting Wena in a hotel because they didn't have enough people to properly staff a household so that Wena would feel like she was being treated right. But they would. I mean, occasionally Mamie would put in her diary she was desperate to hire whoever, butler or, or a chauffeur or something like that. The amount of stationery and ink that was expended during a time of national warfare when even rationings maybe should have taken up more of their time and energy, but they really were frantic when they thought they weren't going to have enough employees. So what was going on? Why was there such a labor shortage during the war? Well, during the war, African-Americans found out that they could go to work for industry on either coast. It was not as easy maybe in Beaumont because of the rigid segregation, although the uh, Magnolia refinery at that time would have employed African-Americans and some of the other businesses. But what they found out was if they went to either coast, East Coast or West Coast, there was a lot more choice. The pay was better. There was not such rigid segregation, if at all. There were benefits like paid vacation and even maybe some early forms of medical insurance. Things were just better, and they could really do well there. And there was there was a pretty good exodus uh, from Beaumont, and particularly after the race ride here in 1943, Um, I'm sure a lot more left because they realized they could go somewhere they wouldn't be harassed so much. So you did have a lot of men and women who went to work in wartime industry. That's so interesting. I was going to say the mass exodus of women, too, considering they comprised the majority of this household help, and they also left for these other economic opportunities. Yeah. And social opportunities, too. Yeah, it's so interesting. So one thing that I found interesting when I travel around the South and I visit different historic sites, somewhat like ours, is this idea of the benevolent caretaker of the family and this family-like relationship that develops between family and staff. And sometimes for me, that's a little bit disconcerting just because I'm a historian and I know that it wasn't so rosy and pretty. And there was quite a there was quite a bit of, I guess, impediments to success in education and even political participation for people that were of the African-American demographic. What would you recommend historic sites do to kind of quell that romanticized nostalgic narrative a little bit? I guess any advice to another historic site is just do your best, do your due diligence, and try to, if in the absence of any personal records at the house, just try to find out what the situation was in the whole community at large, and that would be through newspapers and censuses and any kind of municipal records you might have. I think that's great advice, especially as a former high school teacher, to delve into those primary sources. See, kids, this is why we make you read primary sources, and then we make you argue them. (laughs) So thank you for backing that up. Yeah. So we see that these dynamics between the employer and the employee, they're complex, right? Because in many ways, they might have these bonds and they might be affectionate toward each other, but there's still that line that can't be crossed. And Rhiannon and I kind of discussed that earlier. We know that Mamie and Cecilia, they had that bond, 
but would have maybe have invited Cecilia to, you know, come and participate in organizations or to come to church with her. Basically what you're saying, Kara, is that history is complicated. It is, and it's <laughs> sticky. And that is interesting for historic sites and for historians because you want to portray how history was and oftentimes history is told from one perspective that is not always multifaceted. And so it makes your jobs very interesting. Yeah, public historians, we often pose the question, who owns history? Because in this moment right now, the three of us do, as we're sharing our particular perspective on the happenings here at the McFadden Ward House from 1906 to 1950. So Judy, what inspired the research for this article? It was part of my job at the time at the McFadden Ward House to, I was kind of hired as a research assistant, which involved interviewing as many people as I could before they all died, and also interpreting everything that we needed to know to, to do tours. When the museum first opened, it was sort of, the tour was sort of based on decorative arts a lot, because that was kind of where Mamie was and where her friends were and what people thought museums ought to do at that time, even historic house museums. And then as time went on, and it wasn't long after the museum opened, the realization that what people really wanted was the story that went with the house. And so we started looking at the stories, and I had a list of people I was supposed to interview, and then, as it always does, one interview leads to another, and we finally realized there was this whole area that the African-American employees, you know, that, that comprised a whole leg of the interpretation of the house, and that was when we came up with the three basic themes, the built environment, the family, and the domestic employees, because those are the three things that you can't tell the story without involving. There was this realization that there was a whole story out there, a whole community of people that we needed to find out about. And so when I did, actually the curator at the time, Jessica Foy said she thought I ought to write a paper on it. And uh, we approached the Southwestern Historical Quarterly and they were very interested in it. And so that's how that how that got started. A lot of history is sort of like you fall in a rabbit hole and you have to follow it. And if you get to, that's great. <laughs> well, and I think it's great too that in this process, you interviewed quite a few of the staff members and spouses of staff members that were here on site. So you got to hear directly from the source their interpretation of what their time was like here. And I think we should give credit to Cecilia Smith. I believe, did you collect her oral history that we have? I did not. Someone else did, but they did a wonderful they job. They really did. And if anybody out there is listening and you want to hear Cecilia's voice and her words, please reach out to us because we have tapes and transcripts and all the great things from Cecilia's spoken word about her time here. But she was such an integral figure in the transition of this site from a house to a museum. Can you tell us a little bit about what her role was in that? Because honestly, we wouldn't have this museum if it if it weren't for her. Uh, you're you're right. We would we would have great gaps of information. And um, she was, of course, uh, the maid at the house for like forty years. And before the end of Mamie's life, she had really become as much companion as she had made, because she really was. She was a little, uh, just not much younger than Mamie, and she, you know, couldn't really get around that well, but she was still here, and Mamie loved her, and so they really were more like companions. And when Mamie died, Cecilia, 
at that time, she had her rooms in the carriage house, but she spent every night in the house with Mamie because Mamie did not like to be alone. And she knew about where everything was when she came to work there in 1940, or whether it was even older than that because Cecilia's mother had been uh, uh, the laundry uh, person, laundress at the house uh, for years and years. And so Cecilia came with her mother as a child to the house and often would come with her when Bruni worked parties and Cecilia would stay with her because she didn't want her to have to walk home by herself. So she knew what, what was there even as far back as 1906 and 1907. And she was able to tell them so much about the provenance of, of the collections and about the lifestyles of the family and what they did and where they lived, when they would change rooms around. She really was just a trove. I don't know how many interviews there are, but at least 10 with Cecilia. And she not only, she also on one of them talked about her childhood and her girlhood and her life. And that was wonderful. But a lot of the times she was talking about the furniture in the house, but you'd also get little tidbits of what was going on with the family and with Cecilia and in the midst of it. They're wonderful. Yeah, they really are. That was one of my favorite things when I first got here was to listen to those tapes and hear her voice and read her words. It really helped me grow an understanding of that special relationship between Cecilia and Mamie. Yes, it was. Um, Cecilia said that Mamie taught her her ABCs. <laughs> and I do know that she came to the wedding, Mamie's wedding, at the house. And I think she stayed upstairs, you know. That was... The domestic employees were supposed to be invisible, and uh, uh, but she was up there, and she helped Mamie get ready and saw the dress and, you know, got to see the festivities and things. I know that's a complicated friendship. So it she is. couldn't invite her to her wedding, one of the most important days in Mamie's life, but yet she was still present on the backside of things. Not just theirs, but so many of those domestic employers uh and employees' relationships were very complex, very complex. Whole books have been written about that. Yeah, it's fascinating. So in your research, what did you find to be the most fascinating part of all this? The dependence, the employer dependence on the employees, the fact that so much time and energy and mental anguish were expended in trying to make sure they had who they needed and how many people they needed and had the right person for the right job. And it made me realize that now very few people have domestic workers that just stay in their house all day, every day. And you might think, oh, gee, wouldn't that be nice to have to do all that housework? But they spent so much time trying to get somebody to come and do that work that they could have done it themselves. <laughs> but it just would not have looked right. You know, they're, they're, uh, during the war, Ida writes Mamie that she went to so-and-so's house the other night, and you know it was someone in, in their social circle in Huntington, West Virginia, where uh, Ida had come from. She was back visiting, and she's writing Mamie, telling her that she had gone to some friend's house for dinner the other night and that she did all the the woman did all the serving herself just she was sort of reporting it in terms of amazement 
But then she went on to say, we all must do our part, you know, and mostly for people doing your part meant observing rationing or going to work in the local um, uh, shipyard. Right. <laughs> but Saving your it didn't mean you had to clean your own house because they had been doing that for years anyway. But it was really an eye opener for me to see that dependence and realize that in their own way, the domestic employees did exercise some control over their lives. Yeah, they were a big part of the functioning for these families. Exactly. And the caretakers of the family, of the children, of the things. And that's why we try to give credit to them because we have such beautiful things in our collection. Our house is still standing after all these years, and that's due to the work of these people exactly. who did it. We their, their toil is what gives us this beautiful site for people to come to to learn history. So we owe them a great deal here. We, we acknowledge everything that they went through, how difficult that was. Thank you so much for joining us, Judy. We really enjoyed getting to talk with you and learn a little bit more about history and our site as well. Well, thank you for having me. This was great fun. Well, we appreciate your time and being here. Thank you. joining us for this episode of 1906 McFadden Ave. We hope you'll tune in for the rest of our series featuring the stories and voices of the African-American community in Southeast Texas. Follow along on our social media platforms for behind-the-scenes info and to learn more about the McFadden Ward House. This episode was presented by Kara Timberlake and Rihanna Heft. Todd Heft produced and edited the episode. Music produced and performed by Todd Heft with Tom Deemer.